You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Happy Valentine's Day. All right, thank you. Because first, sir, as I said that, they're like, I wasn't sure if they knew it was Valentine's Day or what was going on there, but uh, happy Valentine's Day. It's good to see you this morning. And uh, before we get started, I'm going to just ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. We're going to pray together, but this morning, instead of me voicing the prayer on your behalf, you're going to be speaking to the Lord yourself. So. If you're online this morning, uh, if you would, just bow your heads with us. And I'm just going to give you a few things to consider and to pray about, and you're going to speak directly to the Lord. So what I want you to do in this moment, your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want um, you could just to kind of put everything else aside. I don't want you thinking about the cold, rainy day that's outside these walls. I don't want you to think about your to-do list for this afternoon. I don't want you to think about your job tomorrow and all that's waiting for you tomorrow. I want you to think about any of that. Right now, I want you to clear all that out of your mind. I want you to focus on one thing, and that is your King, your Lord, your Savior. So I want you to imagine that you and Him are just going to sit down and you're going to just have a little talk. No fancy words, but just honesty, openness, love. When we sing songs together, it's not just because we like to sing songs, but it teaches the Word. The songs themselves teach and preach their own sermon. And any declaration or proclamation of God's Word has as its goal life change. So we don't just sing songs and repeat them just to be repeating them. I think sometimes we get so so accustomed to singing the songs, we don't even really think about what we're singing. So that first song, as we prepare our hearts to to pray, it says in that first song, Glorious Day, I needed rescue. My sin was heavy. The chains break at the weight of your glory. I needed shelter. I was an orphan. Now you call me a citizen of heaven. Now as you think about your life and you think about where you were before you met Jesus, I want you to go back in your mind's eye, and I want you to think about your life before you met Jesus. I want you to think about how things were, how you saw the world, how you thought, how you, what was a priority in your life then. And then I want you to think about that day that you met Christ. You may not remember the exact day, that's fine. But there was a change that happened in your life. And I want you to think about all that Jesus has done in your life up to this point. Maybe five years since you came to faith in Christ, it may be 30 years, but I want you to think about all that Christ has done in your life. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to give Him thanks. Thanks for bringing you out of darkness. Thanks for giving you the life that He's given you. It's not been easy, but you couldn't imagine doing life without Him. So right now, I want you in your own words, you don't have to do it out loud, but you can if you want to. I just want you to pray to the Lord and give Him thanks and and show your gratitude for all that He's done in your life from the moment you met Him 
and the change that he's made. Then in the second song, these were the words that we sung. Oh, we're free, free. Forever we're free. Come join the song of all the redeemed. Yes, we're free, free, forever. Amen. When death was arrested and my life began. The Bible tells us that when we come to faith in Christ, when He gives us new life, we are free and free indeed. But I wonder if every person under the sound of my voice, whether online or here, has experienced that freedom that Christ has promised. If you are in Christ, then you are free. You're free from worry. You're free from hatred. You're free from fear. Free from addiction. You are free to love, forgive. You're free to live for Him. So right now, I want you to think about your life with Christ. And is there anything in your life that has you bound right now? Anything in your life that has control over your life that's not Jesus? And if there is, if it's unforgiveness, if it's bitterness, if it's anger or lust, I want you to admit that to the Lord between you and Him. I want you to state what it is clearly and concisely. I want you to say to the Lord, this is the thing that has me bound. This is the thing that is not allowing me to live freely in Christ. I want you to admit it, and I want you to state it directly to Him right now. And then in that last song, we sung these words, I'll stand with arms high and heart abandoned in awe of the one who gave it all. I'll stand, my soul, Lord, to you surrendered. All I am is yours. Worship, when we worship God, when we focus our heart and our life on Him, it, it leads to obedience. It leads to living the life that Christ has called us to live. When God is big in our life, everything else gets small. But let me ask you a question. When that song says, when we sing this song, heart abandoned in the awe of the one who gave it all, are you living your life in such a way that all areas of your life are under the lordship of Jesus? In other words, are there areas in your life that are off premises to the Lord? In other words, things in your life that, that you control, things in life that, that you call the shots on. The question is, is, will you abandon your rights, your plans, your will for His? If there's areas in your life that are controlling you. I want you to name those things right now. Name them. Jesus already knows what they are. You're not hiding anything. So put those on the table and admit that this is an area in your life that you've kept off limits to His Lordship. Father in heaven, you have heard the voices of your people. You know their motivations. You know the contents of their heart. Nothing is hidden. So, Father, we cast all this at your grace and your mercy that you have said that is manifold. 
that, Father, when we have things in our life that are in more control of us than you, Father, you call that very clearly what it is, idols, false gods. So, Father, I pray that we collectively will be willing to lay those things down completely. We would abandon them once and for all. There's no hope found in them. There's no peace found in them. There's no love found in them. There's no forgiveness found in them. So, Father, may we truly live what we just sung. That we would live with a heart completely abandoned to the things of this world. Father, God, us in your word this morning, our, our goal, our hope is that as we rightly divide your word, that you would bring about life change in all of us, me included. That, Father, you would take us to the deep places that you would challenge our thinking, our, our misconceptions, our misunderstandings about who you really are. And Father, you would challenge that at the very core of who we are. And Father, once again, you would be big in our life. And as a result, all other things would become small. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to be here in this place. We ask it in Christ's name. All God's people said. First John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Um, so the, the text we're going to have before us this morning, I, I didn't choose because it was Valentine's Day. Honestly, I didn't really think about it as far as it being Valentine's Day weekend. Uh, but the reason we're going to be in this text this morning, you may be thinking, well, what has 1 John 4 got to do with hell and Hades, what we talked about last week, and this being part two to that? Well, what I found, and I'm certainly what you're finding in our culture, is that our culture's perspective on God is a little bit messed up, to put it, well, put it as basic as I can. As a matter of fact, you might have heard over the last few weeks, and you, you may have been in a, in a situation where somebody has made this statement, that they are praying to the universe. Not really sure what that means, but I've heard it repeated over and over again. Uh, social media, I've seen little memes pop up. I've even heard uh, leaders of nations say that they are praying to some great force in the universe. Some may refer to the person they are praying to as Mother Earth. Uh, it can be either male or female or neither. Uh, some idea of some life force out there somewhere in the cosmos and what I, what I want to show you this morning is, is our misunderstanding about God, our preconceived notions, things that culture is telling us about God, has a direct impact on how we live our life. Because theology and doctrine has as its goal life change, how we live, how we see the world, that is life transformative as it works in our life. But our culture responds to God as they perceive Him to be not necessarily how he really is. They, they, they perceive of a God who, uh, well, has nothing to do necessarily with the Old and New Testament of the Bible. Uh, he is this force out there who has as his goal or her goal or its goal to make our lives better, our lives comfortable. As a matter of fact, the only time we appeal to him is when things go wrong. And you'll notice that this has crept into the church as well. 
Maybe it's crept into your thinking that, that God has no right on your life, no say in your life until we get the cancer diagnosis, until we've had the car accident, until our marriage is on the, on the rocks, that, that we don't refer to him, we don't call out to him. As a matter of fact, the only time we use his name is when we use it in vain until something goes wrong. Well, that is our culture's response to God and, and how they perceive him. They, they see him as some benevolent even weak at times, power in the universe. Uh, he, his goal is to provide comfort to you when things go wrong. He has nothing to do with the Bible that you hold in your hands. And even, even in some evangelical churches, it's almost like the God that we talk about is not the God of the Bible. And as we have those perceptions creep into our thinking, it affects how we see everything. So when we come to the topic of hell and Hades that we've talked about, the lake of fire, we spent two weeks talking about heaven. We spent last week talking about this place of, of torment that is a, a holding place that when you die apart from Christ, you go there. It is a place of suffering. It is a place of torment. At some point in the future, that place is going to be emptied out. They're going to stand before God, the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20. God is going to pronounce them guilty, and He is going to cast all of them into the lake of fire which is eternal. It's when we come to this discussion that our culture and our community and our world has the most visceral response. So when you begin to talk about eternal damnation or judgment, that this God in their mind that they have conceived in their mind that is altogether loving and His, His main goal in life and main goal in our existence is to make us comfortable. So when we come and talk about the idea of of judgment and hell and a place of torment, it is immediately and quickly rejected because it doesn't add up to the false God that many in our culture have, have built up in their minds. Not only is there a visceral response, but there's almost a, a mocking that comes about. If you, if you doubt me on this, just bring it up. Bring up Jesus in one of your conversations with someone who is far from Him. Just bring it up. And then, and then in the course of those conversations, just bring up the reality of all. Just ask them, what do you believe about the life hereafter? What do you believe happens to a person when they die? And let them talk about it. And then you bring up the topic of hell, and you just see what kind of response you get. Mocking? Oh, you're one of those stressing those kind of people, right? Oh, you're religious. You're not telling me you believe all that the Bible has to say about a place like that, right? Certainly you haven't bought into that old Puritan way of thinking that, that the Bible actually has something to say. I've had people say these things to me mockingly, jokingly about something I take very seriously. And, and the reality is, is the reason they can't begin to wrap their arms around it because in their mind, the God, whether it be a he, she, or something in between, the God in their mind couldn't possibly have anything to do with that kind of judgment. So here's what we want to wrestle with today. is how could a loving God send people to a place like hell? That's the question you're going to get. That's the question that, that many in our culture are thinking because they have a misconception about who God is. But folks, that's not just in culture. It's in the church. The idea that there's going to be a second chance after we die, that after we die and, 
we die apart from Christ, somehow, somewhere, someplace, there's going to be some kind of second chance, there's going to be an opportunity. Or the other idea that, that when we go into that place of torment, that eventually we just cease to exist, that our soul spirit just kind of burns up and, and whatever flames are there, and we no longer exist, and therefore, no need to really worry about it, because if we cease to exist, then what's the big deal? That's in the local church. You see, the way you answer that question, how could God send people to hell for eternity? The way you answer that question reveals what you believe about God. What it does is it uncovers that maybe, just maybe, maybe in your walk with Christ, maybe you have some misconceptions, misunderstandings about God that are not at all rooted in Scripture. A.W. Tozer, who is a great theologian, great writer, says this. He says, quote, What comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Did you get that? I mean, think about it. it the, first, the first thing you think about God, when, when you think about Him, for those watching online, for those here this morning, if you've never been born again, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, the first thing you think about God is vitally important. If you think of God as just this angry, disconnected being somewhere out in space, and, and He's just waiting for, for the opportunity to hit you upside the head with something, that's important. If you view God as being some benevolent, weak spirit or power in the universe whose, whose sole purpose of existence is to make you feel good about yourself, that's important. A.W. Tozer goes on to say this, What comes to our mind when we think about God as the most important thing about us? Worship is either pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. So what do you think about God? I'd say they're vitally important. Take a look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now the love that John is talking about here is a Greek term that we know to be agape. And it's, it's an idea of love that is so far removed from how our culture defines love. Now, if they're misdefining God, then automatically they're going to misunderstand and misdefine love. Our culture's idea of love is what you get, not what you give. So, so the idea of love in our culture is this idea that I get all that I can get from another person, and whatever I can get is somehow expressed in love. It's not about sacrificial giving. It's not about putting the other first. It's about you. You know, I've done quite a bit of premarital counseling since I've been here, and I've, I've done quite a bit over the years. And my sole purpose in premarital counseling is to take a young couple who are completely focused on the wedding day. The groom, he's focused on the honeymoon. Okay? The bride is focused on the day she gets to be a princess and walks down an aisle in front of all of her friends and everybody is there to celebrate. They're, they're focused on that day. My job, and I'm kind of the bad guy in this, is to make them focus on the next 50, 60 years of their life. And one of the things that I say to them is love is not something that makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. Love is about sacrifice. It's about what you give, not about what you get. And that conversation is always, always really interesting. Because if any of those of us in the room who've been married a while, you know 
that there comes a point in time when the toilet seat's left up and the, there's a mess in the bathroom and a mess in the kitchen where the feelings just aren't there anymore. And if your love, if your concept of love is just about a feeling, then it takes about a year and a half, maybe less, for the honeymoon to be really over. Now we're talking about a choice. Choosing to love. Notice what John says here. For love is from God, and whoever, has, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, and anyone who does not love does not know God. Now that doesn't mean that an atheist can't love someone. But the love that John is describing here, self-sacrificing love, that kind of love, when you see it, is love of God that comes from God. I'll show you that here in just a moment. So anyone who does not love does not know God. God is love. Look at that. God is love. If you underline in your Bible, if you got your app open and you highlight, bookmark, that is a great place for you to bookmark right there. God is love. In other words... The core characteristic of who God is, is sacrificial love. In other words, God at the very core of who He is, is sacrificial love. Which means that He cannot respond in any other way towards humanity, towards His prized possession, other than sacrificial love. Well, how do we know this? Look at verse 9. In this... In what? That God is love. The love of God was made manifest. That word manifest means brought into reality, put on display. You can see it. It's real. It's tangible. He says that God's love, the fact that God is love, was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son, and here it is, to be the propitiation for our sins. You see that word propitiation? It's a very rare Greek word. It's only used a few times in the New Testament. Here, here's the argument that John is making. John is saying that those who've experienced the love of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, who've had our sins forgiven, we've been adopted, we've been justified, we've been made right, then there is no other attribute of a Christian that we're to be known by than the fact that we love other people. That when we've experienced God's love, we have no options but to give that love out. That the very core of the existence of an evangelical believer in Jesus Christ is sacrificial love. Why is that? Because of the love we've experienced was made manifest through Jesus Christ, who displayed for the whole world once and for all what love really is. Jesus Christ, Garden of Gethsemane, soldiers show up. They're going to arrest him. Judas has betrayed him. Jesus has been predicting this. He knew it was coming. This was the reason he was born, was for this very moment, for this very hour. He is accused. He is beaten. He is, he is hated and has been hated by the very people that were supposed to accept him, the Jewish people. So, so imagine God up in heaven, and He's watching all of this transpire. He, he knows exactly how this is going to end. And God, in His infinite grace and His infinite mercy, in eternity past, has given His Son to be slain by sinful man. The Jewish people who should have recognized Him for Messiah have rejected Him. They're standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, who should I give you? Should I give you this known murderer named Barabbas? 
Or, or should we crucify Jesus? What do you want me to do? And the crowd of Jewish people, God's nation of people, cry out, give us Barabbas, crucify Jesus Christ. He is a blasphemer. He, he, he does not deserve to live. He is a threat to our power and our influence. Hang him on a cross. They have beaten him with a cat of nine tails. They have put in a crown of thorns on his head. He's got to carry a cross through the streets of Jerusalem, through the very land that God promised to the Jewish people. They now hate him to such a degree that they're going to hang him between two thieves as an innocent man. Even Pilate says, I can't find any wrong in this man. They lead him out the outside of the city. He goes to Golgotha. He's stretched out on a cross. They, put, they drive spikes through his wrist and through his feet. And while they're driving those spikes, Jesus cries out, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I want to offer to you this morning that any parent in this room, any parent in this room, if you want to get a parent riled up, you come after their kids. You want to, get, you want to see me get ugly? Come after my three. Come after my wife. I'll get rather ugly about that, okay? Because as a husband and as a dad, my primary role is to provide and protect that which is closest to me, and I will do whatever it takes to protect my family. Any parent that's worth their parenting would do exactly the same thing. You accuse my kids, you come after them, you got to deal with me. Now imagine for a moment, God, the Father, God, the Son, existence in eternity past comes to this moment in time when God is going to not intervene. That He's watching all of this transparent. And not only that, He knows the motivations and the content of the heart of the people who are accusing His only Son, by the way, who is perfect in every way. And God is not going to intervene. He's not going to intervene when they drive the spikes through his wrist. He's not going to intervene when they hang him up between two thieves. He's not going to intervene when they accuse him of all kinds of things that he's never done. He's not going to intervene when they throw a sword through a spear through his side. He's not going to intervene. He's going to allow it to happen. And not only that, Jesus, God the Son, who told Peter himself, Peter, don't you know that I've got ten thousand legions of angels that I could call down right now to put a stop to this. Even Jesus himself could have stopped it, and he didn't. You know why? Because God's love has been made manifest to the world that when Jesus Christ hung on a cross, he was saying to you forevermore, over and over again, I love you. If love is sacrifice, then no greater sacrifice has ever been made. And God the Father allowing His own Son to die in our stead. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that He who knew no sin became sin for us. Propitiation. The idea of propitiation is that Jesus was perfect, yet He became an adulterer. He became a liar. He became hate. He became unforgiveness. He became lust. He became all, every sin that you could possibly imagine. Jesus became that, not just the sin itself, but the sin that every human being, since the fall and all the way into the future, every sin that would ever be committed is placed on him in that moment, and he becomes that sin. And you know what God does? God pours out his wrath. See, it's not just that, that God stepped back. But it's that in that moment, God pours out His own wrath, wrath that was directed at you. He directs at His Son. Now, folks, 
I don't know what your life has been up to this point. I don't know how much you've been hurt. I don't know what kind of parents you had. I don't know what kind of hurt you've been through. But make no mistake about it. You are loved. And God proved His love for you when He sacrificed the very best in your place. So when the Bible says, when John says that God is love, he's not talking about our world's mixed up, messed up understanding of what love is. We've taken that kind of love and we've lowered it down into something base, something ugly, something that's not real. That's not the love at all that we're talking about with God. But that poses a big problem, does it not? So if God at His very core is love, then how in the world can God send someone to a place of torment? If if God is, is that kind of love, if that's the kind of love that He has, then then how does people end up in a place so awful? Turn over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I think you may have already picked up on this, but there's something really wrong with the question that I'm posing, and we'll see it here in just a moment. Okay, so God is loving. The Bible also describes God as being just. God being just means that whatever He does, He acts in love. He also acts in justice. Justice meaning that The right thing is always going to be done in the right circumstances with the right motivation. God is not going to be judging in a way that is unrighteous. He's not going to be judging in a way that has some kind of ulterior motive. That God is going to be judging in perfection and righteousness. So look at what Paul has to say here. So on the one hand, we have God who is altogether love. And that love is different than the world, the way the world describes love. He's not some kind of benevolent being who exists simply for you to be comfortable. Notice what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God. Is that a contradiction? Can God both be loving and just, but also have wrath? Apparently so. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that just as much as God's love has been revealed, John would say it this way, that God's love has been made manifest. How was it made manifest? Well, it was made manifest on that cross at Calvary, that God's love is unmistakable and undeniable. But Paul says here, in union with what John is saying, that God's wrath has also been revealed. It has also been made manifest that just as much as His love has been revealed, that God's wrath has been revealed. Could it be that there's some things that make God angry? Could it be that there are things going on on this planet right now that deserve the wrath of God? And if so, how do we, how do we wrestle with God's love versus His wrath and His justice? Look what happens. He says, His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous. What is ungodly and what is unrighteous? With Him being the creator of the universe, He gets to tell us. He gets to determine what is right and what is wrong. Humanity doesn't get to decide that. You don't get to decide your own ethics. You don't get to decide that on one day, on one situation, this is wrong and another situation is right. God has said certain things are right, certain things are wrong. He is God and He has the right to do that. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, 
notice this, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That you and I, who are Christ followers, when you went back a little while ago and you were thinking about that time when you came to faith in Christ, if you also remember, there was a time back there that you were suppressing God's truth. Maybe you heard from a friend that God loves you. Maybe in vacation Bible school you said, your God loves you. But you also heard that, that God is going to pour out His wrath on you if you reject the gospel. And suppressing the truth sounds something like this. Well, you know, did God really say that? I mean, can the Bible really be trusted? Is hell real? I've got plenty of time. I want to live my life. I want to do what I want to do. Listen, preacher, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, I don't want to be ostracized by my culture. You don't understand. I'm on a college campus. Or I'm on a high school campus. Or I'm on a job site and all my all the people I hang with, they they don't know Jesus. They've never heard about the Bible and they actually make fun of it. And if I if I say anything about this, they're gonna make fun of me. And that's that's more of a cost than I'm willing to pay. So I'm gonna suppress that truth. I'm just gonna put that in the back backside somewhere. I'm just gonna hide that away. I'm not gonna talk about it, I'm gonna suppress it. You see, just as much as unbelievers suppress the truth, believers also as well, depending on whatever situation we're in. But the unrighteous. They naturally, without any effort at all, explain God away. Somehow the gospel's not true. Somehow Jesus didn't resurrect. Somehow it's not all real. Somehow I've got enough time. You hear what I'm saying? That is suppressing. That word suppress means to step aside, to put aside, to press down, to ignore, to reject. Verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Did you get that? What can be known about God is plain to them. He's already said that God's wrath is evident. But even God Himself, it says here that, that God has made it plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation. What is, what is Paul talking about? Paul is saying that that every single human being has had God revealed to them. That when you look at the sun, the moon, the stars, when you look at the mountains, when you look at a flower, when you look at the birth of a child, there is something inside humanity that screams out, yells out, and says, there's got to be more. There, there's got to be more to this universe than just things happening by accident or mistake. There's got to be a power. There's got to be something out there. God has revealed it to them. In other words, they know. But instead of leaning into that, instead of, instead of wanting to know more, you know what they do? They suppress that. They reject it. They push it aside. And the next thing you know, they're worshiping a rock or a tree or a sun or a totem pole or something. Here's what it says. It says, as they continue to suppress the truth, it says here, and God has been revealed. His wrath has been revealed. His love has been revealed. His creative power has been revealed. It says here, they are without excuse. They're without excuse. And as they continue to suppress that truth, they begin to worship false gods. 
In other words, they begin to make gods in their own image. Rather than us being made in the image of God, we make gods in our own image. And that's exactly where our culture is. We've got the power of the universe. We've got the Mother Earth. We've got all kinds of things that mean nothing at all because people are pursuing that which they've been created to pursue. The only problem is they're misplacing it in gods who are not real at all. I've told you this before, but Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, we've all been created in the image of God, and therefore we, we reach out We're looking for something real. We're looking for our Creator. But the world keeps giving us all these other options. We keep building our own gods, and they're made in our own image, and we pursue them to our own peril. The fact of the matter is, is we suppress the truth of God. We don't lean into it. We reject it rather than pursuing it. He says here they became futile or foolish in their thinking. It says their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, God says, okay, you're going to reject my revelation. You're going to reject my love. You're going to reject the fact that wrath is coming. You're going to reject all that. You're going to to make some old God in your old image here. Okay, fine. Have at it. Part of the image of God in us is that we have the ability to choose. And God is more than welcome to let you choose. You see, the problem problem is is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. You choose hell. And God is completely fine, completely okay with with the image in you. He is fine saying, okay, you choose to reject, you continue to do that, you continue to reject the truth, then okay, I'm going to give you over to yourself because I'm not going to force you to do and believe and put faith in me. Because if God did that, then we would be nothing more than robots, right? I mean, imagine it this way. You've got someone that you're infatuated with. You've got another person that you're just, oh, this, this is the person for me, but that person is not returning that love to you. You pursue and you pursue and you pursue, and they, they, just, they just blow you off, forget you. You come up with a grand idea. I'm going to kidnap them. I'm going I'm to lock them up until they say that they love me. I'm going to force them to love me. Not only would that be horrifically awful and illegal, but it's a false thinking about love. What's that person going to do? They're going to say they love you. Just as soon as they can get some freedom, they're gone. Okay? They don't love you. God, God is not here to make a bunch of puppets that are on strings. They say, oh God, we love you, we love you, we worship you, when we really don't. No, God is concerned about the heart. And the heart that is bent towards Christ, that is transformed through rebirth, now we have the capacity to love, to forgive, to live. But Paul says, we suppress that truth. So we are choosing, we are choosing His judgment. If God has given His love in Jesus Christ, and not only that, on that cross, God also displayed His wrath. On that cross, we have both God's love displayed and God's wrath displayed. No one suffered like Jesus. And He's suffering not because He did anything wrong. He's suffering because I did and you did. So if you want an understanding of hell, just how bad it is, you only need to look at Golgotha. So bad that that God turns the lights off right in the middle of the day. And Jesus groans and moans from that cross, bearing the sins of all humanity. Paul tells us that 
by rejecting the gospel, you have chosen his judgment. By rejecting putting your faith in Jesus, you have made a choice. And that choice is, is that I am going to place myself under the wrath of God. I, studying this this week, I, I realized something that maybe I've realized before, but I didn't wrap my mind around this. But did you know that when a person rejects Jesus, rejects the gospel, and they die in their sins, and they go to this place of torment, did you know that in that place of torment, their sins does, do not end? Their sinning does not end when they go into this place of torment. If I, could, if I could pull back that place right now, if we could pull the curtain back and just listen in to what's going on in hell right now, here's what you would hear. You would hear, hatred for God. You would hear absolute hatred. You would hear cursing. You would hear some of the most awful things coming out of hell. It's not as though people have come to themselves and said, oh, oh my goodness, I wish I could have another chance. Oh, I wish I could find God's grace. No, they are cursing God with every breath they have. They have not ceased to hate Him, and the hatred has grown even more. So they are there because they rejected Jesus and they are going to remain there because they continually spew forth hatred towards this God who gave every bit of love He could possibly give. All they had to do was receive the gift. Just a few things I want to close with and to remind you of. First of all is that God's love has been revealed. Maybe you didn't have the best parents growing up. Maybe growing up your dad was abusive, or maybe he was just not home, or maybe he was strung out on alcohol or drugs, or maybe he abused you physically, or maybe he abused you verbally. Maybe the only thing you ever heard your dad say about you was just hatred. So when you hear me say that God the Father is love, you have a hard time with that. Because the only father you ever knew treated you with contempt. What I would ask you to do is just to cast your eyes on a cross. Maybe, maybe you had a mother that really had no motherly love. Maybe you looked at other families and you thought, man, I wish my mom could, could love like that. You've been carrying around that pain for years. and It's been, it's been the one thing that's been between you and God all these years. The, the idea of self-sacrificing love, a love that, that is so powerful, so amazing, that, that God Himself would allow people to treat His Son the way that they treated Him so that you could have an opportunity to feel and experience that love. If that's what you're wrestling with, can, can I just bring your attention to the reality of a bloody cross and a man who's hanging there who didn't deserve to be there? The only reason he's there, the only reason he's there, the only reason God isn't sending down legions of angels, the only reason, listen, when they're standing before Pilate and the crowd is crying, crucify, give us Barabbas, God could have spoke the word and every single human being standing in that courtyard would have fell dead right in that moment. Just like we saw back in the Old Testament where the earth opens up and swallows people up. God could have spoke the word in that moment and said, that's enough. And he could have raked every one of them off into hell, but he didn't. And you know why he didn't? Because he loves you. He's got his eye on you. He had his eye on you all the way back 2,000 plus years ago when his son was bleeding to death. His eye was on you. 
So regardless of what you've experienced in your life, regardless of the pain and the hurt, there is no getting around it. Jesus loves you. God loves you. And he has displayed that love for all mankind. And all that is left is for you to receive that love. That's all that's all's left. Second thing I want you to see is, is that by rejecting God's love and grace, you are choosing separation. I don't know how to take any plainer. If God has done all of that, if God has allowed His Son to go through that, and you are going to walk right by that, you're going to reject that because you've got some other little God that you think is real, you've got some kind of power out in the universe that you think somehow is going to bring you out in the end, can I just be as clear as I can? If you reject Jesus, you choose hell. You've chosen it. And God is going to give you the right to make that choice. You're inviting His wrath. Third, God is working all around us to bring people to Himself. You've got coworkers, people you go to school with, that God is working, revealing Himself to through creation. And they've got questions in their mind. They they, they see the world and they, they hear what they're being taught, but they, but they see the world and they, they think, well, it couldn't have worked that way. I don't, I don't understand. It couldn't have been just some impersonal force out in the universe. It had to be something more. There are people around you asking those kinds of questions. What better person to join God in the work He's already doing than you who've experienced that love and that grace and that mercy? Those who've put faith in the revelation they've been given are ready to hear more. They're wanting to know, is this God personal? Is He real? Would He truly love me in spite of all of my failures? Would He, would he truly love me where I am? Would he, would he truly allow His Son to die for a person like me? That's the questions they've got. And you're the one that needs to join God in that work. I said last week, it's worth saying again, that for those of us who come from death and the life, when you understand that there's a heaven and there's a hell, we've experienced that love. We've been changed by it then why in the world would we not want everyone to know that? Why in the world would we not want to talk about Jesus in our conversations? If, if we've experienced that kind of love and he has, he has changed us, then there is no excuse at all that Jesus, the greatest love of our life, wouldn't come up. Not in using His name in vain, Using his name in such a way that wants people, people to want to know more. There's a difference in you. They want to know why. Father in heaven, your word is true, it is perfect, it is pure, and has the ability to, to rebuke, has the ability to restore, has the ability to give rebirth. And so, Father, during this time of uh, response, 
pray that we would surrender all rights to our life. And Father, that your word would bring about that transformation that each one of us needs, whether we be born again or not. Father, I pray that for every lost person in this building and this watching online, I pray, Father, that we are very clear, very clear, clear that God loves us, clear that, that both God is both love and just. Father, that we are clear that by rejecting the gospel, rejecting Jesus, we have made our choice. All the preparations have been made. There are no excuses. So, Father, the day of salvation has come. Well, I had someone ask me this week. I have these other gods that I think are real, but, but I'm beginning to think that maybe Jesus is the only one that matters. So what should I do? Father, your word is clear. To reject all other false gods because they're not real at all and to surrender to the one that matters. To turn from our whole life and turn towards Jesus. To confess that He is the King, that He is the resurrected Lord. There is no other. And to give up all rights to our life to Him. Father, for the believer, the disciple in this room, Father, to believe all this theology and all this doctrine must lead to some kind of change in our life, and it certainly must lead to us bringing up the name of Christ. It must lead to sharing the gospel. It must lead to join you new, joining you in the work that you're already doing. Father, if it doesn't lead there, then we are in disobedience. We are sinning by not participating in the great commission work you've given us. There is no middle ground and there is no excuse. Have your will and your way, both online and here. If someone needs to respond, Father, may they take the steps necessary to respond to your call. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.